Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We're in Spain. And it's hot. And I mean really hot. 38 degrees to be precise. That's just about 100 for our American listeners. We'll have more on weather and climate issues later in the podcast. But first, this week, Spain took over the presidency of the Council of the EU. The six-month rotating presidency means that they are driving the agenda in Brussels, organising and hosting the key meetings that drive the EU forward each week. In a twist of timing, the country is also holding general elections in just a few weeks' time. In this episode, we're going to take you through what's at stake at a fascinating time for Spain. We'll visit a suburb of Madrid to take the political temperature. Isidro, 47, who's a locksmith, tells us that he doesn't want to say who he's going to vote for because it's a secret, but he is not very happy with what the government has done. He says that... Talk climate policy with Spanish Minister for Ecology, Teresa Rivera. When we see the maps, the expectation, the climate scenarios in terms of temperature, in terms of water, in terms of risk of desertification, in terms of crops, in terms of wildfires, the maps, the colors are horrible, are frightening. And find out more about Spain's policy priorities during its six months at the helm with First Vice President Nadia Calvino. There are four areas uh, which are top priority for us where we will try to make as much progress as possible and bring over the line as many files as possible. I'm Suzanne Lynch, host of EU Confidential, and this week we're coming to you from Madrid. I'm joined by my colleague, Jakob Hankavella. Hi, Suzanne. And we are standing here in the beautiful Plaza Mayor in central Madrid. The square is packed with tourists under this beating sun uh, that we're standing o- under. Scorching sun. We yeah. try to hide under the shadow of the statue of Philip III, who ruled the Spanish Empire in the 17th century. But the shadow is now crowded with people, um, so it's not the best spot to record this. So explain to us, Jacob, about the political system in Spain. So traditionally Spain had two big parties, the centre-left, PSOE, the Socialist Party, and the centre-right, the PP Party. And people were quite evenly divided between both. And, uh, you know, we're talking a lot about polarisation in Spanish politics now. It's actually always been very polarised. You had people who would only ever vote 
the center-right, and the same for the center-left. You had people very loyal to that party. But in recent years, you've had a lot of new parties emerge. Some have disappeared as quickly as they emerged, like Ciudadanos, which was centrist liberal. You had Podemos, far left. And you have Vox, the far-right party, which has gained a lot in popularity in these recent months and for the first time could join a government. So, yeah, a bit like what we've been seeing throughout Europe, this kind of fracturing of the political landscape, not just those kind of you know, dual systems that we see in a lot of countries. So at the moment, we have a government led by Pedro Sánchez. Pedro Sánchez, who's from the PSOE, so the center-left socialist party. His government is a coalition with left-wing parties, and that's been a problem. Um, It's been a problem for his government because there's been a lot of infighting and it's a problem for the mobilization of voters. As senior PSOE officials tell us, the problem is that people are more talking more about the infighting of the government and the kind of dissenting voices coming from these far-left fringe parties like Podemos than about actual policies and bread and butter issues. And that's mobilized the right-wing voters who are very mobilized, very um, motivated to go vote, whereas the left-wing voters, the concern for the PSOE is that they might stay at home. To understand a bit more about the political dynamics underpinning the forthcoming election, we spoke to Madrid-based political scientist Pablo Simon. Pablo Simon, Associate Professor in Carlos III University. He started by explaining more details about the upcoming elections on July 23rd. We are having a parliamentary election, so we have to elect the 350 members of our Congress. And it is crucial here because for the moment the polls are saying that the Popular Party, which is the main opposition party, probably will be the first party in this election. And on the other hand, uh, Pedro Sánchez, which is the head of the government and is the head of the Socialist Party, probably will be the second with about 100, 150 seats, something like that. The context in which uh, we are facing this election probably will entail a change in the government. Probably we will move from the left to the right in like a kind of conservative wave we are seeing in other countries of Europe. And also we are now discussing about the possibility of having a coalition government between the Popular Party, which is a conservative party, and the radical right of Vox, the far right. So that's a distinct possibility with this election. Could you explain a bit about the background of Pedro Sanchez is leading this government? It's been, you know, why do you think there's going to be this shift? Pedro Sanchez arrived to power in 2018 with a non-confidence vote against Mariano Rajoy, which was the conservative prime minister during the previous period. And then we have uh, two elections in 2019 and he became the first party with the Socialist Party with about 120 seats, something like that. He was able to to form a coalition government with the radical left of Podemos and with the support of the pro-independence parties from Catalonia and the Basque Country. This was enough for having a majority in the Congress and uh, we have to distinguish during this uh, his stay in office in two different periods. The first period was the pandemic period, the COVID-19 period and in this, during this process the, this government had to face a lot of very difficult challenges as happened in all over Europe and in general the people was more or less satisfied with his performance. Uh, We have not seen that he lost uh, popularity in the polls or something like that. Everything changed when the uh, Ukraine war started. In this context, with an inflation crisis, we started to see, uh, first on the one hand, a process of uh, loss of power of purchase uh, from the, the general public, the necessity of new measures to contain inflation and also the electricity prices, and also a change in the leader of the Popular Party. The previous leader was Pablo Casado, which was 
a very young, very radical leader. He was removed and changed by Núñez Feijó, which is the new candidate of the Popular Party, and is seen as more moderate. This is important because now in the context we are seeing this election, in general the Popular Party is presenting himself as a moderate party that can increase their support, just bringing stability to the country. On the other hand, the socialists are saying that the Popular Party plan to have a coalition government with Vox, the radical right, so it is impossible to be a moderate. Why, in general, we have seen that the socialists have lost ground in the polls? Well, I think everything started about the war of Ukraine, but various, in a very uh, clear way, in the moment when we have a, a scandal related with the prosecution of people that have charges for violation. Um, the idea is that the socialists started to be seen as a party that was not able to manage those kind of things related with women, with the protection of minorities. And in general, what we have seen is that this eroded the popularity of the government, despite, and this is the paradox, we have seen in the polls that the people support the main policies of, of this government. In general, we have seen that the unemployment rate is okay. In general, the growth is okay. Uh, people support the, inc the increase in the minimum wage, the, the labor reform. All those kind of measures have a huge support of the population. About 60, 70 percent of the population support them. But at the same time, and this is the paradox, people do not trust Pedro Sanchez. And that explains also why this campaign is a very negative campaign. The Popular Party is focusing all the, crit all the criticism on Pedro Sanchez not on the policies of Pedro Sánchez. And this creates this strange situation of polarization we are seeing in the campaign. We saw the elections in May, the regional elections, and there mm -hmm. seems to be, for example, areas of Madrid, poor areas that would have been kind of left-leaning, mm -hmm. that are shifting right slightly. I mean, do you think that Podemos, mm -hmm. the, you know, the far left, kind of lost a lot of the left-leaning voters? Well, we, in general, let's say uh, two things. First, the more poor areas in Spain mainly abstain. Uh, what we have seen in the past election is that the abstention has grown about one point, one point and a half, depending on the area. And this is very interesting, especially in the Basque Country and Catalonia, which are the more left-wing oriented regions in the Spain. So this can give us uh, some clues about what happened in the past election. But in general, what we can see is that people have shifted to the right in the following sense. We have seen some voters of the Socialist Party that have gone to PP. And some voters of the far left that have gone to the socialists, depending on the region. So in general, we have seen that it's true. Podemos have lost ground, partially because of the abstention, but also because the socialists have absorbed part of the support. And it depends on the territory. It's not the same the story in Madrid, for instance, where Mass Madrid, a more, let's say, green-oriented uh, radical left, have more power than, for instance, in the interior regions of Spain, where Podemos have mainly disappeared everywhere. So this can be like a kind of shift to the right in general, but also explains us one story about the weakness of the new parties that emerged in Spain in 2015. Two parties, Ciudadanos, Liberal Party, and also Podemos, Radical Left Party, emerged in 2015 challenging the new part, the, the traditional parties, the Socialist and the Popular. We have, have seen in this election that they have disappeared. To get a better understanding of how some of these issues are playing on the doorstep, I headed out to the suburb of Alcorcón with Jacob and our producer, Cristina González. 
So we've just arrived in Alcorcón. It's a suburb in the southwest of Madrid. It's about 25 minutes on the metro into town. So it's very much a kind of a suburban commuter place, really. It's just coming towards the end of the working day here. Lots of people are coming off the trains, heading back to their homes here. So this area here would have been traditionally left-leaning, but that's kind of changed now, isn't that right? Right. So in the recent, in the most recent uh, local elections, there was a swing in the vote from centre-left and left to centre-right quite marked one and we're here to find out why has this working class traditionally working class neighborhood why is it swinging to the right now so we've just come across this cafe it's on the corner of a very ordinary looking street here and uh, we're going to pop in to see if we can talk to some people I see people drinking coffee eating cakes I think even drinking some beers so let's see what they've got to say Five or six men are perched on stools just by the window, drinking beers, coffees and eating little pastries. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon and we order some coffee and sweets as well. Before long, Jakob strikes up a conversation with one of the men. He's in work clothes with a ripped t-shirt, greying hair and tan skin. Forty-seven-year-old Isidro tells us that he does not want to say who he's going to vote for because that's a secret. But he says he's not happy with the current government. He says they have not fulfilled their promises and that he cannot trust Pedro Sanchez. He believes that a new government would be better. He is worried that the current government made a coalition with independentist parties. When I ask him whether he's worried that the centre-right could form a coalition with the far-right, he says he's not worried about that because it can't get worse than what it's now. Uh, The three things that he cares most about are the economy, jobs, and basically a mix of both, which is purchasing power. He says what he could afford 10 years ago, he cannot afford now. He has a 19-year-old son who he says he's worried will not be able to afford an apartment. And he says, we used to save money in the past. Now what I worry about is getting to the end of the month. He arrives at the cafe just as he finished uh, his workday. He works as a locksmith with his partner, who tells us that he agrees with everything that Isidro has told us. Jacob also caught up with the cafe's owner, Nilsa. Nilsa, who is in her 40s, is the owner of this cafe and bakery. She says she's owned it for a year and it's actually going very well. She's happy. She has a lot of customers, mostly working class, she says. They come often very early in the morning, and she opens uh, from very early in the morning, from 7 until in the afternoon. She says, even though she's happy with how her business is going, she's not happy with the current government. She uh, blames inflation for price increases. She says prices are going up every month now. And at the same time, she can't pass on these increases to her customers because they're watching very closely how much they spend. So she has to be very careful about increasing prices. She says she likes Ayuso when I ask her who she wants to vote for. But Ayuso is not a candidate in these elections. Isabel Diaz Ayuso is the president of the Madrid region. She's from the center-right PP. She made a pretty populist campaign, but uh, she's liked by a lot of small businesses and business owners because she, during the pandemic, advocated for keeping bars and restaurants and cafes like this one open. 
she said Spain lives off its small economy, which is true. And that resonated with a lot of Spaniards because uh, almost every family in Spain knows someone or has someone in their family who own a bar. So that argument uh, worked quite well. Um, when I tell her, well, these elections are not going to be Ayuso, but uh, the candidates are going to be Feijó or Sanchez, she says that's why she's not decided yet who she's going to vote for. But she believes that uh, the current government has not helped small business owners enough, um, not with inflation, but also not with uh, support. She says when she's sick, she has to work anyways. Even though she has employees, she cannot afford having a, another employee when she's sick. So she just keeps working and she would like more support for small businesses also to invest, she says. Vale, pues muchas gracias. As our afternoon in Alcorcón came to an end, we headed back into town to discuss another issue that's front and centre in this campaign, climate change. My name is uh, Teresa Rivera. I'm the third vice president of the government of Spain dealing with um, environment, climate, energy and something we call demographic challenge, which is the the difference between the type of life in uh, rural areas and the type of life in urban areas and how we should be investing for democratic reasons in those people that think that they are a kind of second-class citizen. I asked Ribeira, the government's minister with responsibility for climate policy, about the scale of the climate challenge facing Spain. When we see the maps, the expectation, the climate scenarios in terms of temperature, in terms of water, in terms of risk of desertification, in terms of crops, in terms of wildfires, the maps, the colours are horrible, are frightening. And I think that uh, this information is, is important so to avoid the worst impacts of all of those things. But this means uh, thinking the cities in a different manner, planning the cities in a different manner. This means using water in a much more responsible manner. It, I mean, I think that we have improved a lot in terms of um, an efficient use of water, but there is still much to do. And there is um, still much to do in terms of investments to add water and to be more efficient in the use of water. So I think that the, the smart thing is trying to build resilience to avoid the worst effects and trying to build the opportunities so that uh, there is a new creation or a new understanding and update on what is viable. And this um, applies to every single thing. The energy demand does change because of the temperature, because of the summer, because of the uh, milder winters. The resistance of these infrastructures do also change because they need to bear with uh, different uh, atmospheric conditions. This applies to tourism, this applies to access to water, this applies to forest availability and to the quality of the land, so to grow up crops and so on. So I think that uh, we need to go through the different uh, sectoral policies to be sure that there is a, a common understanding on where the challenges may be and where the opportunities may be. So some of the figures are extraordinary. We, your state weather agency said temperatures were predicted to hit 44 degrees Celsius in the country south maybe in the next few weeks. Everyone is seeing the pictures of the wildfires in Spain. We're even hearing that at some point in the future, you know, parts of Spain will become uninhabitable. But trying to deal with this and respond to this as a government, what about ordinary people? I mean, there's a concept we hear from Brussels all the time, a fair transition, bringing people along with policymakers so that the burden of trying to deal with climate change economically doesn't fall on the poorest and the most vulnerable. 
I think that this is very, very important. It could be impossible to promote a, a real, a meaningful climate policies if there is no social justice in what uh, we try to push forward. So what we try to do is to strengthen our social policies dealing with transition, transition in the energy sector, so phasing out coal with the just transition plants everywhere there, where there used to be coal, coal mining or coal thermal plants with coal. But beyond that, trying to figure out what uh, this transformation of the energy system may imply for consumers in terms of who could be in a weak position to face uh, the differential cost of energy in these complicated times, um, being uh, even worse with the, uh, with the Ukrainian invasion, or trying to figure out how we should be thinking about the use of water and uh, the need to build resilience in the countryside against wildfires. So yes, we need social policies coming along with climate policies, otherwise it could not work. And this is also interesting from the perspective that Nicholas Stern underlined 15 years ago, transforming the way we produce and the way we consume, the way we build cities, the way we build business is challenging, but at the same time there are many opportunities if we pay attention and if we anticipate who could be in a quick position to face this transformation. And this is what we have been trying to do, trying to figure out where the um, investment, industrial, business, social, labor skills being demanded by the labor markets could be, so that we could come along with these ideas before there was any type of uh, class or difficult situation for anyone. We have succeeded to a certain extent, and of course there are still many things to do, but this is an opportunity to update the way industries do work. This is an opportunity also to figure out how we can innovate, be more efficient in the use of materials, but also innovate in the understanding of where the labor skills, so the education skills may be needed. Ribera, a former UN climate negotiator, helped guide Spain's shift away from coal back in 2018 by negotiating with unions on retirement and reskilling schemes, as well as investing money into mining regions. We reached an agreement with the unions in November 2018, and it included the commitment to invest in the local areas, so to diversify the economic capacities and the, um, the industrial alternatives, but um, also, of course, taking into consideration something which was very important. No one working on the coal areas could be with no alternative job for a while, so that uh, we could uh, ensure that the older people could probably be uh, preferring being retired, but uh, for the younger people, there was a need to re-skill everybody and a need to, to identify other opportunities. Now, Ribera and her party are battling another interest group, farmers. The problem here is water and Spain's lack of it. The European Commission has already taken Spain to the European Court of Justice for breaching EU nature and water laws, specifically over the deterioration of the Doñana National Park, an ecologically rich wetlands area in Andalusia, in the south of the country. We have tried to be very honest on this, and being very honest on this means in the water planning cycle, trying to figure out according to science and the modeling exercise what what amount of water would be available in 5, 10, 15 years' time meaning that there could be less water available for any use, 
and uh, trying to figure out how we could compensate that. First, prioritizing, of course, access to water for households, for people, for human consumption, and then trying to show to what extent we could increase the amount of available water, non-regular, non-traditional water. So they use uh, the access to desalinated water and they use to an access to reuse water and how much we could get from a huge investment in efficiency and the um, renewment of the infrastructures, of the transportation uh, infrastructures of water, so to avoid leakage. That um, was um, useful because that could provide the reasonable amount of water that we could count on. But farmers are not happy, and the regional government in Andalusia, led by the centre-right PP party, proposed a new solution effectively allowing more farming and promising to transfer water from elsewhere. Ribera slams the plan, even though her own government was criticised by the European Commission for not doing enough to adhere to the ECJ ruling. It is absolutely populist and I think that this is not a serious manner to deal with uh, problems. Stay with us. We'll be right back to learn more about Spain's priorities over the next six months as it takes the helm of the Council of the EU. 
with important files such as the um, Fiscal Governance Review, Multiannual Financial Framework, Funding for Ukraine, Banking Union, Capital Markets Union, Anti-Money Laundering. A second area of work has to do with the competitiveness of European companies and strategic autonomy. And here, the reform of the uh, regulatory framework for the European energy market is a, is a key uh, element, as well as all those files linked to green finance. And then the, there's a third area which is somewhat different, and that's the digital framework, because we have a, an important file, that's the AI Act, which we should try to close under our presidency so that we have a clear framework to support innovation, but in a manner which is compatible with our rights and values. And finally, we'll try to deepen cooperation with Latin American uh, countries. There is an important summit where we'll try to land some important projects and also make progress in, in trade negotiations. One of the issues you mentioned there in terms of priorities uh, is the whole issue of competitiveness. And you mentioned the phrase strategic autonomy. A lot of people might associate that with President Macron, the idea that Europe needs to be more dependent on itself when it comes to both economic capabilities, defence, etc. I mean, are you worried, though, that the EU is going to turn inwards, in a sense, that the EU that was, is, is after all, a trading bloc and does so much trade with other areas in the world, are you worried that this emphasis could lead to more protectionism, for example? Well, I hope not. Certainly, that shouldn't be the objective. We always talk about open strategic autonomy. The EU is a trade powerhouse. Uh, Our open economies have profited from this international trade and also sharing technologies and synergies between different sectors and different players. And so we have every interest to keep this uh, competitive advantage through technological innovation, but also uh, cooperating with other parts of the world. This is very clearly our approach. And I think that the fact that energy has been weaponized, uh, that we see also uh, shortages in areas such as chips or raw materials, essential raw materials, makes it imperative for us to make progress in this area in the coming six months. So energy, you mentioned their reform of that, that electricity market is one of the aspects, one of the complex files that will be going through the EU system when Spain is in the driving seat over the next six months. Energy prices have come down a lot here. I mean, Spain was one of the countries back, you know, 18 months ago that was coming to Brussels, ministers coming to Brussels saying, um, look, we have to do something about energy prices. But things seem to have got under control here in terms of energy prices and inflation. Well, but high energy prices continue to be a a dragging growth in, in many European countries. Fortunately, this is not the case in Spain, and that probably explains why we have such strong growth. Spanish companies are gaining market share. I participated this morning in, a, in an event, uh, CleanTech for Iberia, which is trying to identify the advantages of the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal and Spain, in becoming the next CleanTech hub in Europe. And this is undoubtedly linked to the penetration of renewables and the low energy prices uh, that we have and the advantages for, for green hydrogen. So the fact that energy prices have gone down does not at all mean that we should slow down our efforts to become more independent and to have, as soon as possible, clean and cheap energy in Europe. You mentioned earlier on the multi-annual financial framework that's known as the MFF in Brussels parlance. And this is the long-term budget, the seven-year budget that the EU agrees periodically. But at the moment, the Commission has suggested a revision of this, a mid-term review. And that's going to fall to you guys to manage. 
already we're hearing you know reports in brussels about some countries not being happy with some of the suggestions the commission put forward so we've we've got money in there for migration for example another issue that's going to be on the agenda and we've got money uh, this is connected to the whole issue of funding ukraine do you think you're going to get agreement on the mff review and how uh, worried are you about a dissent uh, around the table on this file well, the MFF negotiation is probably one of the most complicated in the European uh, world. You know, I was I was previously director general for budget, so I don't expect this to be an easy discussion. And yet, it is very important that we agree uh, so that the second part of the mandate, I mean, the second part of the multiannual financial framework for the coming three and a half years, we have a framework that actually delivers and can allow us to respond to the new unexpected needs that, of course, were unforeseeable uh, back in, in 2020. I'm talking about the war in Ukraine. So we need to have a stable framework to provide financial support to Ukraine. We need to also refund the next generation EU funds and, and uh, respond to the higher interest rates to repay that debt. We need to have more flexibility. You know, I think the elements that the Commission has put on the table are really a minimum, which should provide us with a good basis for this negotiation. But in parallel, we also have to negotiate new own resources, so new revenues to the European budget, the financing for Ukraine, the budget for 2024. Uh, you know, the long list of, of files which are going to be complicated is impressive, but uh, we have to do our best uh, to succeed. Looking for more money from countries at the moment is going to be a tough task. I mean, on this revision of the MFF, are you concerned about the stance of Hungary, for example? There are concerns that they may disrupt agreement on the MFF. Files uh, and agreements that require unanimity are obviously much more complicated. But I hope that by the end of the year we will have a, an environment that would be conducive to such a, an agreement. We'll do our, our best to make progress. Your country is facing elections in a few weeks. You know, your government may not be in power. How is that going to impact the presidency, uh, these election results? I mean, is Spain really going to be able to commit to running this presidency in the proper way, given that you've got these elections and potentially huge political change, people like yourselves no longer in, in power after the, after the end of the month? Well, three points from my side. First of all, of course, I hope we will win. So I hope I will continue to be the vice president of the government and look forward to leading these debates and, and negotiations in the second part of the of the year. But second point is many countries uh, have elections during their presidency. And, and that brings me to my third point, which is we have been working closely with the commission, with the council for many, many months to prepare the presidency. A lot of technical work has been done and I, I am persuaded that we'll be able to have a successful presidency as well as winning the elections. Many thanks for your time. Many thanks to you. And that's all we have on this week's episode of EU Confidential coming to you from Madrid. We'll be back next week in Brussels with more news and analysis. If you like the podcast, please do follow us so you never miss an episode. Thanks this week to our executive producer for audio, Cristina Gonzalez, here in Madrid. See you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 